Hello, funky listeners, and welcome to another episode of Funk Radio. This is your host, Kyle. And this is your host, Peter. I love another episode of Funk Radio. It's the funkiest. And you know what, Kyle? We're in the funky future now. 2020. Oh, that's right. Did you ever think we'd be doing this uh, podcast this long? We we started in, what, 2013? 12. Oh my god, really? Yeah. Uh, we had our seven-month anniversary of the show a few months ago. Oh yeah, that's right. So Kyle, um, now we, uh, and I had to go back and figure out which uh, episode this was, but, um, uh, and actually this is a good tie-in, um, because we were just talking about our beginnings, but, um, mm-hmm. way back and toward the beginning of the show, um, several years ago, and I think, uh, February of 2013, we did an episode uh, that covered the untimely death of several different singers in uh, various circumstances. Happier times. Yeah, and I actually listened to that episode again pretty recently, uh, largely for preparation for this topic. Just to make sure we hadn't already covered this topic in detail, and we really didn't. So um, I think it's good that we're finally, <laughs> several years later, coming back to this and um, doing it justice. But... uh. Yeah, God, I mean, I, you know, thinking back to that episode, I remember like, oh, you know, we talked about, you know, maybe four or five people. But listening to the episode again, we covered like at least 10 people in that episode. I didn't realize there were so many. Yeah, I vaguely remember some of them, but I swear we could probably do like a whole sub-series just on like exploring each one of their mysterious deaths individually. Yeah, no kidding. Well, that's the thing, too, is that like for most of the people in that topic, they didn't die mysteriously. A lot of the time it was like they had a drug overdose or they died in a plane crash. But did they really? (laughs) (laughs) And in that episode, (laughs) one of the many people we talked about was the singer Sam Cooke and his death, which was really kind of bizarre and uh, filled with a little bit of controversy. So um, we're we're really going to dedicate this episode to diving a little bit deeper into that whole story. Mm -hmm. But this is also coming off of the... um, the Tupac and Biggie murder investigation episodes that we did a few months ago now. And honestly, I I think those are some of the best episodes that we've ever done. And I'm really proud of those. So if you listeners are at all interested in that story, um, it's very uh, complex and confusing, but also really fascinating too. Yeah, it was definitely the most researched. So I think that whole thing kind of rekindled our interest in looking back at some of these weird murder death stories and uh looking further into those because mm-hmm. no one's ever done that on a podcast before <laughs> there's definitely no other podcast out there that talk about unsolved mysteries whatsoever <laughs> or cold cases but yeah so what we're talking about today peter mentioned a little bit earlier um is the mysterious death of sam cook he was a singer and songwriter who rose to fame in the late 50s uh in sort of the early R&B doo-wop era, um, sort of pre-Motown, I suppose. Yeah. And he basically kind of helped lay the groundwork for a lot for like what would be considered soul music in the 60s. The reason that he is so widely known today is because at in his time, he became popular with not only African-American audiences, but he successfully, quote, crossed over into popularity with white audiences as well, which notably at that time, due to segregation, was very difficult to do. Uh, Only 
a handful of artists like, you know, Ray Charles or Chuck Berry really managed to do that. So because of his crossover ability, his work and success kind of became very influential for a lot of other black musicians who were rising up around the same time or a little bit after him, such as Bobby Bomack, uh, Aretha Franklin, Curtis Mayfield, Marvin Gaye, and, and others. Mm-hmm. Just so you kind of get an idea of his sound, let's play a little clip of probably one of his most famous uh, breakout songs called You Send Me. I know you. I don't think I ever actually knew that this was his breakout single. I didn't either. Like, he had been recording music for several years before this, but uh, I guess this is the one that really got him popular. Mm -hmm. And this one's from 1957, so uh, yeah, it's a good song. Yeah, he really was kind of the grandfather, I guess, for a lot of those artists, um, creatively. So that's kind (laughs) of... Not literally. Yes, he literally grandfathered all of them. He he got around. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, he did, but that wasn't... That yeah. wasn't why. <laughs> um, so that was basically in, you know, a short summary of, I guess, his success and career. However, as I said, he rose to fame in the late 50s and that carried on through the early 60s. However, his career was ultimately cut short because he died at the young age of only 33 on December 11th, 1964 at the Hacienda Motel in Los Angeles, California. After his death, LAPD found his body at the motel after receiving uh, separate reports of a shooting and a kidnapping there. Um, At the time of his death, he was basically wearing nothing but a sports coat and one shoe. So no shirt, no pants, no underwear, no service. Sounds like a regular weekend for me. (laughs) I was going to say, that's how I lounge around the house. Uh, just one slipper and a sport coat. <laughs> and he had sustained a gunshot wound to his chest, which was later determined by the coroner to have pierced his heart. So, yeah, very not normal way to basically find, probably at the time, one of the most famous singers in the country. Yeah. And obviously we're going to go into the more of the details of all the events that led up to it and mm-hmm. everything. But uh, we wanted to start with kind of just the rundown of basically what the aftermath was and now kind of going into uh, what what led up to that. Mm-hmm. And so we want to go into, I guess, the official story of what happened uh, as it has been understood publicly, basically through the testimony of people who were involved in uh, the events of that night. Uh, but as we'll see later in the episode, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who don't believe that this is true, either partially or completely. Uh, so, We'll start with this, and then later on we'll kind of go into some of the controversies and inconsistencies. Mm -hmm. So as I said, police basically found him um, on the, I guess, early morning of uh, December 11th, 1964. That night, or I guess the night prior, on December 10th, 1964, the events start, leading up to his death, start around 9 p.m., Sam Cooke was spotted at the Martoni's Italian restaurant um, having dinner and drinks with some friends and associates from his music business. One of the friends that was with him in the restaurant, as corroborated by witnesses, was 
a 22-year-old Asian girl named Elisa Boyer. And yeah, and to clarify that really quick, um, he he didn't know her before that night, but he saw her and a friend of his introduced him to her. Ah, uh, so him and Alisa um, seemed to hit it off. Not really surprising since Sam Cooke was kind of known as like a suave ladies man. Um, He's also married, by the way. <laughs> the, that's sad, too. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. so, yeah, they were at this restaurant um, hanging out until about 1 a.m., which apparently that restaurant stays open a long time. At 1 a.m., Sam and Elisa left the restaurant in his brand new red Ferrari and headed to a nightclub called PJ's. Um, while they were at the nightclub, Sam had apparently gotten into a heated argument with a guy who was hitting on Elisa. Um, Elisa, Elisa then asked Sam to take her home. So around uh, 2 a.m. or so, uh, the two of them leave the club, and uh, Sam Cook was driving very fast and reckless, because he had been drinking a lot that night, and it was even found after his death that his blood alcohol level was 0.16, which for you drivers out there is double what is considered uh, too drunk to drive. Yeah. Elisa was protesting this and basically saying like, hey, you need to take me home. But he kept ignoring her and uh, he basically just drove straight to the Hacienda Motel. Mm -hmm. So they pulled up and uh, Sam went to the manager's office to check in while Elisa stayed in the car. He registered under his own name, strangely, um, with the night manager whose name was Bertha Franklin. So Elisa claims that uh, Sam dragged her into the hotel room, pinned her onto the bed and started to take her clothes off. And she even told the police later, uh, quote, I knew he was going to rape me. At some point, Sam went to the bathroom, so Elisa took the opportunity to grab her clothes and escape. She ran over to the manager's office and pounded on the door, um, but I guess the manager, Bertha Franklin, wasn't responding quickly enough, and Elisa was scared that Sam was going to come out and find her. Mm. So she actually ended up running away before the manager could even open the door. So Elisa ran down the block and at some point threw all of her clothes down on the ground and started to get dressed. At this point, she realized that she had accidentally grabbed a bunch of Sam's clothes as well by mistake. So she put her clothes on and just left his clothes there and then went to a phone booth and called the police. So meanwhile, while she's doing all of this, uh, Sam has come out of the motel room drunk as all hell and, you know, mostly naked, as we mentioned a little bit earlier. So he also goes to uh, the manager's door, starts pounding on the door and says, hey, is that girl in there? Uh, and Bertha Franklin says no, uh, but he doesn't believe her. So he starts working at the locked door and uh, trying to ram it down with his shoulder. And shortly thereafter, he does break in and uh, immediately he starts attacking Bertha Franklin. Now, in taking a pause here really quick, they did learn later during the investigation that actually at this moment, the motel's owner, a woman named Evelyn Carr, was actually on the phone with Bertha Franklin when this was all happening. And she said that she could hear Sam's intrusion and the uh, ensuing conflict. And shortly after that, she also called the police about this. So obviously, Sam Cook and Bertha Franklin, they're in the midst of this fight. And with a lot of biting and scratching, she was actually able to get him off of her. So she kicked him away, 
ran over to the TV, grabbed a pistol that was on top of the TV, and then shot at him three times uh, at close range. Now, the, the we know that the first two bullets missed, but then the third one entered his left side, passed through his left lung, and through his heart and his right lung. Ouch. So she shot him from the side, I guess? Yeah, from I guess from the left side? Sounds like it, yeah. So, so having just been shot in the chest, um, he f- falls back and says his last words, uh, which are, quote, Lady, you shot me. Bertha said that he actually got up one last time and ran at her, but she uh, took him down with a broom handle to the head. One hell of a woman. <laughs> this time he stayed down, and uh, by the time the police arrived, he was already dead. Yeah, that's a sad way to go, I guess. Um, yeah. Five days later, at the request of the coroner who was, I guess, coronering? I don't I don't know what the verb is for what they do. Coroner's gonna coroner. <laughs> um, yeah, so they were basically investigating the whole yeah, incident. Exactly. And, yeah. Um so at the request uh, at the coroner's inquest, um Elisa and Bertha gave their testimony uh in a fairly quick proceeding. Um after deliberating for about fifteen minutes, the jurors found that the shooting was quote a justifiable homicide as Bertha Franklin was acting in self-defense. Um, so, Which, you know, given that story, seems very reasonable. Yeah, considering that the two people that they had testimony from were the two, only two people he, re- he supposedly interacted with. Um, one of them he was trying to rape, and the other one he was basically trying to kill, so... Yeah. So, yeah, this was on December 16th. And then on December 18th and 19th, after the trial had commenced... The first funeral service uh, for him uh, took place uh, in Chicago, where over 200,000 fans lined up for more than four city blocks to view his body. His body was then flown to Los Angeles, where a second funeral took place on the 19th of December um, at Mount Sinai Baptist Church. Uh, this included a performance of The Angels Keep Watching Over Me by Ray Charles, who stood in for grief-stricken Bessie Griffin. So, basically, even a lot of other singers, you know, in his sphere were pretty shaken up by his death. Yeah. So... It's understandable. Yeah. I mean, like I said, he was only 33 years old. He was probably in his prime musically. Well, he made it past 27. Isn't that the age where they say everyone... Yeah, the 27 Club or whatever they call it. So something interesting that I didn't know uh, that I found out about this is that on the 22nd, I guess, which was only a few days after this, and in total less than two weeks after his death, his most famous song, A Change Is Gonna Come, uh, was released as a single. Now, I think earlier in the year it had already been released as part of an album. Mm -hmm. But I think this was back when a song being released on an album versus as a single had a more of a distinction than it does today. Yeah. So it's just weird that so shortly after his death is when his most famous song came out. True. And maybe that's why it was so famous. Uh, but uh, interestingly, and, and this is kind of just a side note, but um, so uh, earlier that year, back in uh, February, Cook first performed the song on The uh, Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. However, after that, um, Cook actually said that he would never perform the song again publicly in his lifetime. Because I guess the, the 
arrangement was fairly complex, but he also felt that the song was fairly ominous. And his friend and fellow singer Bobby Womack had listened to it at some point, and he said it sounded like death. And uh, Sam Cooke agreed with him and said, quote, Man, that's kind of how it sounds like to me. That's why I'm never going to play it in public. Huh. And yeah, he never did perform it again publicly. But it's just kind of weird that a song that creeped him out a little bit ended up being released within days after his death. Yeah. And it became his most famous song. It's just a weird coincidence. It's just, it's extra weird though, because a song that he personally thought was so spooky ended up becoming a bit of a rallying song for the, um, the civil rights movement in the mid to late sixties. So exactly. Yeah. For a lot of other people, it was a very inspiring song, but to him, he's like, no, this, this song is too spooky, too spooky for me. (laughs) Is that a direct quote? (laughs) Yeah. I, I think that was another thing too, is that, um, I can't. Yeah, I don't have it written down, but I think um, when it was first popular and when he was performing it uh, for The Tonight Show, uh, I think it might have been his his producer who said this, but basically the gist of it was, hey, we really want you to perform this song because this is a message that needs to be heard. And Cook was, you know, not really wanting to do it. Mm -hmm. And you, you could see that he was clearly never really fond of performing it, at least not publicly. But yeah, you're absolutely right that the song really was bigger than him in that way that the song was used uh, for the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Did you want to play a little clip of it or just to kind of tie back into the into this whole story? Yeah, we might as well. I mean, okay. we've mentioned it a couple of times now, so let's go ahead. I can take it. Plus, I just want to hear it again. Oh, and just like the river I've been running every since it's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Shall we uh, get get into these inconsistencies? I guess. I think we and shall. the uh, the the controversies surrounding the events of his death. Yeah. Um, so, as Peter was saying, this is basically the official record of the story of Sam Cooke's death. Now, the reason that there's so many conspiracy theories surrounding his death is because although this is, you know, the what what the official police reports say regarding it, there's a lot of holes in the story. There's a lot of not a lot of testimony outside of the hotel manager and um, Elisa Boyer to corroborate what had actually happened that night at that hotel, to the point that even at, even soon after Sam uh, Sam's death, a lot of his family um, members as well as fans basically rejected the reported version of events and believed that there was actually a conspiracy to murder him, and that the murder that took place uh, happened entirely different from the three accounts from Alyssa Boyer, Bertha Franklin, and Evelyn Carr. Yeah. The, I guess, most widely believed theory regarding what actually happened was that Sam Cooke was set up and robbed by Alyssa Boyer and um, Bertha Franklin. Because since Alyssa's story was the only real account of what happened between her and Cooke at that night... 
basically there was inconsistencies between her version of events as she described them and details that were reported by other diners at um, Martoni's Italian restaurant where this whole event started. They suggest that she went willingly to the motel with Cook, whereas she said, you know, she wanted to be taken home. Basically, they uh, the conspiracy theory regarding her is that she slipped out of the room with his clothing in order to rob him rather than to escape a supposed attempted rape. According to some witnesses at the restaurant, Cook uh, was seen reportedly carrying as uh, much more money than the $108 in cash that was found um, at the scene of his death. Reason being is it was a fairly widely known secret in Hollywood that Sam Cooke would often carry as much as $2,000 in cash on his person at pretty much all times. Now, mm. that doesn't sound like a lot right now, or in nowadays, but... <laughs> I mean, in, I would never do that, but... Touche, neither <laughs> would I. In the early 60s, $2,000 was like carrying $20,000 in cash now, so it was an obscene amount of money to have on your person. So, the fact that it was basically widely known that he did this may have attracted some unwanted attention. And another more circumstantial evidence that kind of points to a bit of a conspiracy is that uh, not not more than a month uh, after his death in January of 1965, um, Elisa Boyer was arrested for prostitution. Um, a charge that ended up being dismissed. So some people think that the connection between the the belief that she was a prostitute, the witness accounts from patrons at the restaurant saying that she was willingly leaving with him point to her not so much as a victim, but as the perpetrator of the crime. I have a few things I want to say about that theory. Yes, And, uh, you know, of course, none of us know exactly what happened. Yeah, of course. My personal theory is that it's pretty close to the official story. Maybe even like 95%. For example, like, uh, you know, Elisa or Bertha Franklin probably took that money. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that one of them did, but it's certainly not out of the question that that could have happened. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't really believe that they killed him in order to get his money. But if anything, I think it was probably just a quick decision based on taking advantage of the situation, basically. Yeah. Another thought of mine is the whole... uh, I I have a problem with the theory that, oh, she left the restaurant with him willingly several hours earlier. So that means that later on he didn't try to rape her. Exactly. Those patrons at the restaurant didn't know what transpired after that. She may have left him with him willingly to, from the restaurant, but maybe he was a huge dick to her after that, and she wanted to be taken home. Yeah. You know, just because someone leaves willingly with somebody at one place doesn't mean that anything that happens to them after that fact is something they willingly signed up for. <laughs> Well, yeah, and, and, and literally, even if they both went to the motel with the same intentions, or even if they got things started one way, you know, things could shift course very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so that still becomes a problem. As for her being, it, it's it's not clear to me whether she was a prostitute. 
because there was that thing that happened the, the next month, but then the charge was dismissed. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I personally don't know, but I didn't really see any other evidence that she was a prostitute. So that may have just been some kind of uh, something to tarnish her reputation, maybe. But even if she was a prostitute, you know, that doesn't uh, nullify, you know, the fact that he attacked her or that her testimony is automatically false. True. So it, it seems like there's a lot of noise with these speculative details that really at the end of the day don't really mean a whole lot. And there's not really a whole lot to for those to stand on. True. I don't know, um, but, but obviously there's more though. So. I was going to say the other the other major account that a- adds a bit of mystery to this is um, that many years after his death, uh, singer Etta James, who had attended his funeral in L.A., recalled that when she viewed Cook's body before the funeral, she qu- ended up questioning the um, accuracy of the official versions of events. She wrote a book in 1995 called Rage to Survive, where in that book she commented that the injuries that she observed on Cook's body, even, you know, after being dressed down, you know, for um, viewing at a funeral, were well beyond the official account of Cook having fought Bertha Franklin alone. She noted that Cook had been so badly beaten that his head was nearly separated from his shoulders, like as in dislocated. His hands were broken and crushed, and his nose was mangled. And this is even with, you know, uh, the makeup and stuff that they put on. In addition to that, Cook was placed in a coffin with a glass top, which would prevent people from touching the body or getting a close examination of him uh, or why they had him in heavy makeup. And so, yeah, because of, you know, observing the body and seeing how badly beaten it was, Etta James came to the conclusion that, like, there's no way that some, you know, female uh, manager could have beaten him this severely before, you know, uh, shooting him uh, in the chest. Mm-hmm. And this uh, led some to speculate a separate conspiracy theory uh, that... Uh, Sam Cooke's former manager, Alan Klein, may have had an an involvement in this in basically having uh, Cooke killed. Uh, The reason for this is that Klein had Cooke sign an agreement for a company that he had created called Tracy Tracy Limited, named after Cooke's daughter, and this company would allow Cooke to be spared of IRS scrutiny, but... It greatly benefited Klein as the owner of Sam's work if Sam died. So because the contract that Sam was locked into basically would have given Klein sole rights over his music in the event of his death, um, a lot of people assumed that Klein had a vested interest in him dying. And there's even some speculation so far as to that um, when Cook was in the hotel room, or motel room, excuse me, at the Hacienda, that he was basically brought there by, um, Elisa and was jumped by multiple, um, assailants in the room. Oh, wow. Basically, who beat the crap out of him. 
you know, whether they shot them in the, in, him in the room, obviously, you know, I'm assuming they did forensic ev- evidence on the bullet, so, on, uh, that killed him, so, you know, they knew that it happened in the, um, manager's office and not the hotel room, so yeah. that kind of seems kind of fishy, like, you know, if they're gonna kill a guy, why would they have done it in the manager's office and not simply in the motel room they were in? Unless... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that whole theory seems weird to me. I mean, do they have any evidence other than the fact that he seemed to be beat up more than what the story had said? Uh, no, not not that I had come across. I mean, obviously in these situations, it's always smart to look at, you know, who who would benefit from this guy's death? Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of people. Okay, okay, so take Alan Klein. He would greatly benefit from Sam's death if it did happen, but it also seems weird that he would choose to have Sam killed right at the height of his popularity. Why not give him at least a few more years, you know, to build a, you know, more popularity and a greater catalog of things that, you know, would have monetary value to Alan Klein down the road? It seems weird that he would just choose, okay, he's at the height of his popularity, let's kill him now. Yeah, it's it, it definitely is a little bit more, even more far-fetched than the, um, than the other conspiracy theory that Elise killed and robbed him. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, again, these are all, you know, conspiracy theories meant to kind of fill the holes in the official story. The sad thing is we'll, we'll obviously never really know what happened, uh, because... There's only the testimony of basically the two women. Uh, in regards to all the different theories, my curiosity here is, is this a case where, you know, especially with someone famous who a lot of people really appreciate that person and admire them, and then you hear about all the really bad stuff that he did and the bad stuff that happened. Yeah. So what you see sometimes in these cases where, you know, there's a really likable person who's shown to have this, you know, secret dark side. You have a certain number of people who say, well, well, no, he couldn't have done that. There must have been another explanation. Exactly. They have to, like, um, what's the word, reconcile their love of his music or art with the person that he was. Um, yeah. There is another interesting fact here. I mean, it's not, it doesn't blow anything out of the water, but it is just an int- interesting uh, cap to this, is that... Um, it says here in an article that I found from a blog called Rhythmic FM that Franklin ended up suing uh, Sam Cooke's estate for $200,000, which was roughly like a million dollars back then, um, mm-hmm. for anguish and physical injuries that it took for her to kill him. And she ended up being awarded $30,000 in a settlement. Oh, okay. So she did get something then, because I... Had seen it mentioned briefly somewhere, but I, I didn't really seem like I had really gone much of anywhere. So she did actually get something then. Yeah, I guess I guess after his death, um, she ended up basically getting a lot of scrutiny uh, and death threats. Yeah, because you know she was his killer, and so due to this fact, she turned around and sued his estate for you know that amount of money because of the mental and physical anguish that it took right. on her. I guess. So that's another point to consider. So yeah, that's just another segment to the story, I suppose. The drama surrounding Cook's life before and after his death was pretty nuts, though. Basically, at the point of his death, 
uh, him and his, like you said, he was married, his wife were basically living totally separate lives at their own home in L.A. and were basically on the verge of a divorce. And to top it all off, his friend and mentee that you mentioned earlier, um, Bobby Womack, um, ended up marrying his wife just three months after he died. Mm. Um, and because of that, Bobby Womack got so much scrutiny for that that he was basically blackballed from the music industry for a long time. That's weird. I I, I say that because... Well, actually, I say that for a couple of reasons. Because one, I mean, that is weird and it kind of one of those too soon situations. Yeah. But that's odd to me that he would get blackballed in the industry for that. Like, why would they care so much about that? Yeah. Because they were friends before his death. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, we described the inconsistencies in the case here as far as why a lot of people tend to think that he uh, wasn't killed in self-defense but so much in premeditated murder. But I guess you listeners can tell us what you think about the case. Me and Peter kind of seem to be more on on the side of the official story, but I, at the same time, I can understand why some people would be a little bit skeptical of the circumstances surrounding his death. If you want to tell us your crazy conspiracy theories, you can tell us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash getyourfunk. And if you're too ashamed of your conspiracy theories and you don't want to tell us, that's okay too. Instead, you can go to getyourfunk.com and you can look up episodes with different topics to distract you from this sad story. Uh, yeah, I, I, I will say that I do feel kind of bad that I haven't really given enough credit to the skeptics and the theorists. It could very well be that if I saw more evidence that pointed toward those theories, then I might be more convinced. But anyway, I mean... Just based on what I've seen, that's how I feel. But, you know, I'm just one True. person, listeners. So we said the things. We said the other things. <laughs> now it's time to say, this has been your host, Peter. And this has been your host, Kyle. Thanks for listening. We will be doing many other episodes in this new year of 2020. So keep a lookout for those. <laughs>